hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Rosie Simas. Rosie is a citizen of the Seneca Nation of Indians. She is a transdisciplinary artist and founder and art director of Rosie Simas Dance. Active since 1992, her projects merge decolonized physical movement with mixed media, sound, and objects for stage and installations. I had first become associated with Ms. Simas from an exhibition here at the Plains in 2019. Her work was unlike any of the other artists in the space, where her performance video, We Wait in the Darkness, with these beautiful maps and overlays on them, filled the space within the exhibition. Now, her work combines themes of personal and collective identity with family, matriarchy, sovereignty, equality, and healing. The thoughtful inner responses and relatable experiences makes this interview so interesting. So, let's jump into this conversation. Rosie, hi. Thank you so much for joining us on Five Plane Questions podcast. Uh, how are you doing this morning? Nyawaiskano, uh, Joe. It's great to be here. Um, I am doing okay. That's great. That's great. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, a little bit about yourself, please. Yes. So um, I am Seneca Heron Clan. Um, my uh, people are from uh, what is now called Western New York. I live in Minnesota, Mokoche, and I grew up in um, this place. Um, I live about a mile from um, what's now called Nicollet Island, so sort of right in the heart of uh, Dakota. Uh, lands. Um, I am a, a transdisciplinary and dance artist. I have more recently been using the term transdisciplinary because I feel that it um, is more in line with my work as an Indigenous artist. Um, I have historically presented my work as a choreographer I do uh, work for both installation and stage. I have to admit, I, I first became as associated with your work uh, through an exhibition at the Plains Art Museum uh, called Wasimo Bishizi, which was um, a an exhibition featuring 25 indigenous women. And yours was one of the, the, the centerpieces of that exhibition. Yes, I believe that that was um, both the film and it was a while ago now. <laughs> it was a film. It was, yes. And also, um, I'm not sure if they had also put up the two transparencies that I had made, um, those two pieces. Yes, with and the, the that maps. piece, yeah, that piece um, was actually made for a dance production um, and also an installation. So I made a, 
a work called We Wait in the Darkness, which was a performance piece and an um, exhibit or installation work. Um, and they ran side by side when it opened um, in Minneapolis at um, Red Eye Theater and All My Relation Arts. The film was a uh, really like my first film where I shot and edited the film. Um, and the overall piece, We Wait in the Darkness, was a piece that was reflecting on my grandmother's life and things that had happened in her lifetime. She was a survival of a boarding school, Thomas Indian School. Um, but she also had experienced other things in her early life, but then went on to, um, uh, she moved to San Francisco eventually. She um, was one of the founders of the San Francisco Ameri uh, American Indian Center. Not the one that, the two that are running now, but previous ones. Um, and um, uh, so that, that, particular film was um, uh, dealing with the building of the Kinzua Dam and the flooding of the corn planter tract, which was uh, one of the Seneca um, reservations. Um, and that was where my grandmother was born. She was born at corn planter. There aren't a lot of people, there are still some, but not a lot of people who are still around with us who were born at Corn Planter, which was flooded in 1964 um, uh, after the um, Corps of Engineers built the Kinzua Dam. So that the building of the Kinzua Dam um, broke the Treaty of Canandaiga, um, also called the George Washington Covenant. Um, people know this treaty fairly well. Um, uh, it's the one that Johnny Cash wrote a song about. And, um, uh, and another uh, important piece about it is that JFK had, um, when he was, what is the term I'm looking for? Um, was it when, when he was campaigning? <laughs> uh, yeah, when JFK was campaigning for uh, president, he had told native people that he would honor treaties. And this is literally one of the very first things that happened when he went into office um, was the breaking of this treaty by Congress to build the Kinzua Dam. And um, there are people who are much more knowledgeable about all of this. Um, there's a couple of films on it. And my film was obviously not a anything, it was not a documentary or anything like that. It was a, a seven minute film that was really about um, uh, my reflecting on how my grandmother may have felt or how I feel it for her. Um, and um, the transparencies were transparencies that were made of two, part, two parts of the relocation maps that were produced by the um, Corps of Engineers. Um, I spent hours cleaning those up in Photoshop and then created transparencies so that the sort of the, I, I guess like even that medium, the, the, the lack of transparency <laughs> or, you know, so this idea that you could sort of see through them um, 
I did other things with those uh, maps as well. I designed a, a, a sort of like a traditional um, Seneca dress to be made out of um, scraps from that, not paper, but actually printed onto fabric. And um, so, and part of that whole process of um, working with those maps in the performance, I, I have an old oversized one, which I hand draw or work or someone who works with me hand draws and then I tear it up in the performance and sort of redistribute it and reorganize it. Um, I felt like all of that working with those maps um, was a, me figuring out how to actually like process or deal with this, you know, um, I think that's what, uh, um, that's what a lot of working with certain materials can be about, um, trying to repurpose it into something else, something useful, which I feel like is a very much a, a native way of working with materials. Um, so that, that was what that piece was about. Who are your biggest influences? Um, the people that I work with, <laughs> I had this question, um, uh, on a panel I was on recently. Um, and one of the reasons that I because in the field that I was trained in and worked in, which is predominantly dance for stage, um, there really weren't um, people that I had access to um, that or knew about. Um, and I feel a lot of my work has been about creating opportunities for other people because there weren't people like me who look like me on the stages um, that I was seeing. Um, so, so I don't have a, I don't have a lot of influences. Like I think a lot of visual artists who are native have in terms of other artists, but the people that I am most sort of inspired by are definitely the people that I work with. Um, other people that I collaborate with, um, uh, other native artists, and um, I work with a lot of BIPOC and LGBTQIA artists, um, uh, just to name a few. My partner, Sam Mitchell, who is a performer and scholar. Oh, he's now, doc now Dr. Sam Mitchell. Um, Hyder Rich, who is uh, a poet who I um have worked with uh quite a bit um who's also on the board of directors for Rosie Seamus Dance and helps create all of these other opportunities that we make for other artists. Um and I work with a group of anywhere between between 10 and 12 people who um are all artists on their own, meaning that they don't just perform with me but that they are all makers themselves. Um, some of them work with me on set design and costumes as well. Um, and uh, my collaborator, Francois Richaume, who is French, who um, is a composer who I've been working with for about 10 years. Um, yeah. 
how have you developed your career uh, early on uh, and how has it developed or changed over time in a sense? Um, well, I started making dance uh, right out of college and um, was immediately struck and inspired to change the field. I was struck by sort of the lack of, um, at that time, I would say women and young girls that were BIPOC that were in dance. Um, and so immediately uh, after leaving college, trying to raise money to create opportunities for um other choreographers, other uh, who are BIPOC or at the term time we said people of color and, um, and girls. Um, and that was because it wasn't just that it was a field that was dominated by um, white folks. It was dominated by white cisgendered male folks. <laughs> so there was a real need to be able to create opportunity so that there would be in the future more people who look like me and other BIPOC people on stages for younger people to look up to. Um, and, that, and that's really how that work started. Um, I started a studio right away. This is actually my third studio that, that I've started. Um, that we have now at the Northrop King building in Minneapolis. Um, I uh, moved to California for a while and danced in a company with Nita Little, um, who's a, a choreographer, dance maker, um, started a studio there. I, I lived in New York and Montreal um, studying and also um, performing. Um, but it wasn't really until I came back to Minneapolis um, in 2009, at the end of 2009, that I actually ever was really taken seriously. <laughs> and um, part of that has to do with that in my dance work, I did not deal with, um, directly deal with issues of identity. And you know, I'd been told several times during my career that until I started making identity work, I wouldn't be taken seriously. And that's because I'm a brown person and um, not a white person. Um, and, and it was really clear white, white folks can make work about whatever they want to and be taken seriously. But if you are um, a BIPOC person and you don't make work about your identity, then you won't be taken seriously. And so in 2009, I, or 2010, I think it was 2010, maybe 2011, um, I had decided to make a short work, uh, just a 10 minute work. And I had um, decided to sort of dance actually with an, an image that I had filmed the image, the image moves a little bit because of, um, because of how I filmed it and um, of one of my third great grandmothers. And um, I was really apprehensive about sharing this with non-native audiences. Um, and that has a lot to do with my culture specifically. Um, we, are, we keep things very close. 
Um, you know, I was told at a very young age that we're not supposed to share um, with other people. Um, this is, the, you know, we've been burned a lot um, as people from basically the Eastern <laughs> part of this country who, you know, really fought off colonialism going west of the Mississippi for a couple hundred years before it did. And so there is a lot of really ingrained um, apprehension and um, reservedness about um, sharing things that have to do with our culture or, and because family and language and place are all culture and it's all intertwined, how does an artist separate any of those things to be able to share them? So I was very apprehensive. But one thing that happened when I did do this solo is that it actually changed, literally, I feel like it changed me on a cellular level, that it wasn't just me that was dancing anymore, that either she or, you know, my third great grandmother or somebody else was with me. And that actually changed everything for me going forward. So it wasn't about sharing that with, with non-Native audiences. It was about sharing that with native, other Native people in the audience or BIPOC people in the audience, but also how it um, shifted how I was even moving in my own body. And so that's really, like, since then, I've been doing a lot of work that um, has to do with um, story, um, not necessarily literal, um, but um, working with stories uh, ideas um, from my own family, um, and then also sort of using those uh, methods of developing work to work with uh, other BIPOC folks to help them develop story within the work that we're doing, whether the story is between three people or five people or two people or a solo. Um, and that's, so that's the dance work. And then the, the visual work which is a lot of different mediums that I'm working with. And I, I see it all as movement. So if, whether it's moving sculpture or moving image or um, uh, that all things have sort of a vibration and movement to them, um, that really started to develop when I, when I created that piece, We Wait in the Darkness. And I just, it was an absolute necessary uh, necessity that I work with other mediums to be able to, um, convey a larger story to an audience beyond what performance could do. And now sometimes I just do installation with maybe moving image and I don't do performance. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, that's a very long answer. <laughs> it's great. Uh, it's fascinating. The, would you say that, um, the arc of your career, if, if that's the appropriate term, has changed after you had that, um, that, that realization or that experience? Yeah, I would. I mean, there's a couple of things that happen which are both great and disappointing, like it's that double-edged sword, right? So early on, somebody told me like, well, you're not going to make it. No one's ever going to take you seriously until you do work about your identity. and a friend of mine at the time, this is like 2012, sort of challenged me and said, well, why don't you just try writing 
a grant proposal talking about, you know, make something that you're going to do that's about identity. And so I did that. And the very first thing I applied for, I got $20,000. So it was a little like, well, so that person was right, but that kind of sucks. But this is kind of great at the same time, you know, like it's great to be supported for my work and for people to be able to actually see the work that I've made prior to that, which was not necessarily about identity in an outward way. Like it, it, it's all about identity to me as an individual. Whenever I get on stage and perform, my work is about identity. It's just that I don't announce that. I didn't announce that as a younger person. I kept it close to myself. I'm doing a solo. I'm still a native body moving through space, changing space and time. I am on the stage as who, you know, all with everybody who went before me coming with me onto stage that, that already existed. It's just whether or not I said that or that I contextualized it for audiences in that way. I didn't contextualize it. So it was great to have people recognize my work as native, finally, even though I may have been making a solo about loss or making a solo about something much more abstract to the audience. Um, I also think that there was a change in the field in general, not just dance, but um, in, perform in how performance was being seen and that people were actually able to start to see me. Um, and so from there, I've actually been really yeah, I mean, I work really hard <laughs> to be supported, but um, my work has been sort of continually supported since then. Um, and yeah, so I'm really grateful for that. But I also still wonder um, how how. <laughs> how we can um, create opportunity for younger BIPOC people so that they, that it can be a choice for them. Um, and one of the things that we do, so we have a new studio, um, 331 space at Northrop King building. Um, it's not a very inventive name. It just happens to be 331 is the name of the studio. And, we were so, uh, we, we sort of launched ourselves into this creating space for Native and BIPOC artists that we really didn't have time to think about a name. When the pandemic hit, what we knew is that we needed to create a space where people could be safe and still make work, whatever they want to do. So it's a space for transdisciplinary and dance artists. And when we did an open call for artists to... Um, who were interested in the residency program, one of the things that I decided was that we weren't going to base it on their artist statement or their what they were going to tell us they were going to do. So an artist really could really work on whatever they wanted to work on as long as we could support them within the space, you know. Um, and so that we could begin to move away from this idea that um, you're only as good as your as your 
ideas about what you might do. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. or you're only as good as, as, as how you can articulate how your identity is within your work. Um, and yet I mm. think that a person should know who they are and what they want to make and how that relates to their work. But I don't think it needs to be the defining point about what they choose to do or whether they should be supported, whether or not they are choosing to do that or not. If that makes sense. So this, this leads us into the next question about opportunity. Um, the, the question, of course, is, is how do you seek opportunity? But opportunities present themselves differently. Uh, and I, I imagine probably in the last 10 years, opportunities have presented themselves differently as opposed to before. Well, yes. I mean, the, so the first, the, that first grant that I was talking about was the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation Fellowship. And um, they used to have one in choreography. Um, and they only had one in choreography for like three or four years. Um, but it was also the way that that foundation responded to me. Um, they helped me in a way that I don't think other foundations at the time were even thinking about helping artists. Um, they made phone calls on my behalf, connected me with people. Um, so it wasn't just the, the support financially, but it was also the um, opening doors for me in the field in a way that I would not be able to do. Um, and I think that that uh, type of support is invaluable. Um, there were people that um, supported me, you know, out of that. I, I was all of a sudden entering into a different um, part of the field where people all of a sudden knew my name nationally, um, where even locally I had not actually been supported yet. So it took me getting four national grants before I got any Thing locally in the state of Minnesota. Um, and that says a lot to me about how the state of Minnesota, um, the field uh, was behind <laughs> in terms of like their changes in funding and who they funded. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, things have changed a lot, but it, it also has taken um, a lot of work. And, and, and I don't say that lightly or as if I feel sorry for myself in any kind of way, but I feel like I work like five times harder than I <laughs> did before um, in order to keep, keep things going, in order to um, be able to pay the artists I work with because the other thing is this that dance is actually pretty uh, expensive um to produce um and uh it's also part of why I do installation work where maybe I'm just working with one or two other people um but there's a lot more people um in to pay to take care of in a way, you know, to organize all of those things that need to happen to make work in relationship with other people. But it is really my preferred uh, way to work in relationship with other people and, um, and with an intention of connecting with audiences, which is really important. And so in that intention to connect with audiences is also a lot of community engagement work, at least that's what it's called right whether it's the 
installation work or the performance work, um, we uh, as a company do um, a lot of open rehearsals. We um, contract native writers to write about the work in any, in any phase of it. Um, they can come to open rehearsals or they can um, watch performances and write in any sort of way. So this idea of getting native authors to contextualize the work through poetry or prose or criticism or however they want to write about it. Um, we have a lot of panel discussions around the work, a lot of discussions with community. We have uh, community gatherings, sharing food, sharing ideas. Um, and all of that is to uh, be very intentional about connecting with audience, um, whatever audience means, whether audience means somebody who comes to a gallery or a museum and sees work or whether audience means somebody who comes to a panel discussion or comes to a food uh, community gathering um, or whether it's someone who comes to the show or whether that person goes to all of those things or whether they read a poem that somebody wrote about coming to an open rehearsal. It's all about um, connecting to audiences. So that's also a really important part. So it, it takes quite a bit of support to be able to do these um, productions that, that I do, but I think that they're um, really important for native audiences to be able to have access um, to uh, different kinds of native artists. That was kind of general what I just said, but. <laughs> but oh no, but, it, but it's great for the listener to hear that and to be able to, to get a broader uh, understanding of what this is. So that's great. So what do you want to say to the 18 or 22 year old that's listening to this? That's a really good question. Um, I think that it's really important that, that native and BIPOC youth who are interested in art making as a career, um, that they don't have to, that they are able to stay connected to who they are um, and to not get lost in who somebody else wants them to be. I think that's really important. Um, that they uh, seek out um, mentorship because I don't think, you know, it's not something that I had. Um, and I think now there are a lot more uh, native artists in all different fields that um, young people can work with, re reach out to. I feel like there's something else that I want to say about that, but it's not coming to me right now. Um, it's no worries. Uh, the earlier version of this question was, what would you say to the 18-year-old or the 22-year-old uh, Rosie listening to this conversation? If, what would you tell yourself uh, before you started all of this journey? Um, maybe the same thing is mm -hmm. 
I mean, so, so we're, you know, when I was 18, 20, I was in uh, a body-based form, right? So my body is being looked at, the color of my skin is being looked at, um, uh, and judged, um, as to whether or not it can do certain things, right? Because we're talking about dance. And I think that trying to fit a sort of white Eurocentric ideal, um, trying to be that was hugely devastating on my development actually as a human being. <laughs> and that it took, I, I feel like I matured later even as a person because I was so concerned about fitting something that I could like trying to be something that I could never be, even though I was fighting against it, you know, even though I right out of the gate from college, I'm, you know, created a dance company for women and girls of color. I feel like that damage that one experiences, uh, like for me starting in high school, cause I went to arts high school of that, that damage that one experiences that one will never be good enough until one can be, you know, something other than they are is just, is just so, uh, difficult to, to escape. And that it actually, you know, for me impacted my ability to develop as a human being. Um, and I see that now it's easier to see that now. Um, and so I, yeah, I guess the thing is, is that, is that, you know, I feel like for 18 and 20 year olds now, you know, that, that who, who a person is, is, is enough and that they don't have to be somebody else to do the work that they want to do. I think, I think that's the main thing I would say. <laughs> well, thank you for that. That's, it's great to hear that. And, uh, I, I feel what you're saying. Cause I, you know, in my own journey, uh, you know, one experiences very similar things that affect you long-term, you know, the things and the judgments that are made to you when you're young sticks with you for so long. And even though some of those things are distant memories, you create habit around those comments. You, you create, um, you sort of normalize um, your response to those things that, um, you know, uh, affects you down the road in ways that um, you don't anticipate. So, no, I, I appreciate that. So where, um, where can someone find information on your studio and uh, what's coming up with you? So um, I have two websites. So for myself individually, um, rosiesemus.com and then for the company rosiesemusdance but spelled D-A-N-S-E dot com um, those are the two websites um, what's coming up for me and for the company um, uh, January 3rd we're going to New York to perform at the Judson Church which is kind of a big deal for uh, those of us in contemporary dance um 
And this is the first uh, series that's actually being curated by a native artist, um, Maria Humfeld, and um, who's a transdisciplinary artist. Um, and after that, we have a show next fall at the Wiseman Arts Muse Art Museum and also at All My Relation Arts. We're gonna have sort of a dual premiere and opening. It'll be um, an installation that will run for several months, but we will do performances within the installation. It's called She Who Lives on the Road to War. It's, um, it is inspired by um, uh, the, well, the creation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy in the sense of like, the bringing together of people um, in peace. And um, so that was happened, that will be happening next fall. And in the studio, we have resident artists uh, where I think it's, we had eight in the first cohort. Um, and there is a, uh, artists who will be working January and February and then in April. Some of them have public um, events. Uh, some of them do not. Some of them are just working um, in the studio. But, um, uh, and we also uh, have a, a sort of re reinstall of my work, which means a place to rest, which was at All My Relation Arts. And um, that uh, installation will go up in the studio in the month of December, um, given everything that's going with COVID. You know, we hope these things will happen um, and people can come to that. That'll be open to the public in December. And um, it's literally a place to rest. It's an installation of sound and moving image um uh in a space where we have zero gravity chairs where people can come in and just be in the space and take a nap if they want to <laughs> well that sounds great uh i'll put link in the show notes uh to the two websites and people can find information on these exhibitions and future exhibitions so yeah rosie thank you so much for this and for your time and sharing all this this was really wonderful thank you yes skin off And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Rosie again for her time and sharing her story with us. You know, she she touched on something that was so interesting and something that is so relatable to so many visual artists and performance artists, indigenous artists, really, is that we, we seem to be put in this category where we're expected to speak about our culture and our experience and only our culture and only our experience. And for generations now, uh, artists have have strived to be legitimate in the things they talk about from their own shared experience. Um, I've mentioned uh, numerous artists on, on the show multiple times, and Rosie is, is another one of these uh, amazing examples of those who of pushing back against the narrative that's set out before us that this is all we're supposed to talk about and so she does this brilliantly as 
that she does it personally and it's so appreciated the, the work she does because the the hard work that she's doing now is opening the door behind her allowing so many to to move forward and do work based on their personal experiences as opposed to speaking only because they're indigenous artists and so for that hard work uh, I, I recognize her struggles and what she's doing and I'm so appreciative of what she's taking on and beyond that uh, you know the work that she does is astounding so check the check the show notes you'll see links to her website and you'll see clips of some of her performance pieces that are absolutely worth checking out so please take some time uh, look into her and really dive into the work that she does because it is so worth your time to do so so thank you more importantly I want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please, join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canada. That's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook, on social media, Instagram, we're, we're out there, um, and the plainsart.org website. There, you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. So if you have a suggestion for me, for someone for me to talk to, uh, reach out to me. I'd really like to hear from you. All right, that does it. You take care, and we will see you next week. This has been an Eleven Warrior Arts production.